10, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Sobia Stella Sunday. It's Sunday the 24th of April and we have a stellar show lined up for you today. We're speaking to a fabulous leader about strategic leadership and whole school improvement. We also have an award-winning entrepreneur here live in the studio. It's going to be a spectacular show. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for takeoff. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. interview is very close to my heart today um, as I'm alumna from Walthamstow School for Girls where I uh, studied as a child and spent some of the best days of my life. Uh, I left long before Rachel McFarlane took over as a head teacher. Rachel is a well-known and well-respected leader within my local area. Her service to her community was exceptional and she left behind a legacy. Rachel held successful headship positions at WSFG, Francis Bacon School, now called the Samuel Ryder Academy and Isaac Newton Academy in Ilford, which was a non-selective ARC all through Academy for four to 18 year olds and she was rated outstanding by Ofsted. Rachel then joined the Hearts for Learning exec team as Director of Education Services and is the strategic lead for all of their education services to schools across all phases. Rachel, I'm hoping you're on the line. How are you? Morning, Sylvia. I'm here. It's so nice to join you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh no, I'm so glad that you're here. <laughs> It's been a, a, a really thrilling morning this morning already. I've spoken to uh, another guest who's coming on later and I'm really excited for the show today. Um, Rachel, can you explain your background and what you do for our listeners? Yes, of course. Well, you've sort of summarised it. Um, I've been a teacher for about 35 years now. Almost all of my teaching has happened in London, a lot of it in East London, including obviously my seven years at Walthamstow School for Girls. And I suppose now I'd say um, after 16 years of headship, I'd call myself an education leader. That sounds a bit grand, doesn't it? But I'm not a school leader anymore. Um, but I have the most wonderful job as Director of Education Services at Hearts for Learning, where I lead and work with and I'm daily inspired by a team of about 100 advisors and consultants who work across schools and settings in Hertfordshire, which, as you know, is a large authority and beyond. 
um, you know, right through from PVIs and nursery schools to primary schools, secondary schools, special schools. Um, and we support school leaders and classroom practitioners with school improvement, helping them to make sure the education they give to their children is the best possible education. Now, Rachel, I'm not surprised because that's quite a CV. You are actually a, a phenomenal leader at Walthamstow School for Girls. Um, when I speak to alumni, everyone has nothing but good things to say about you. And that ranges from staff, students, parents, the local community. That kind of leadership is rare. What were your priorities and what was important for you when you were in that role? Oh, that's really kind of you. I think I would describe myself, as Steve Mumby would call it, as an imperfect leader. I think probably all leaders um, have a degree of imperfection, and I'm sure that I did. What I would say is that Walthamstow School for Girls, if there was any school that it was easy to be a strong leader in, it was probably that school. It, as you know, Sobia, it's a really special school. And when I joined it, one of the things that attracted me to the position was that it was such a strong school with such a sort of happy ethos. It had amazing staff, really skilled and stable staff, many of whom have been there for many a year. Um, and I loved the fact that it was a school that was 100% committed to empowering women um, with the most wonderful motto. Do you remember the motto, neglect not the gift that is in thee? Um, of and that course really, I do, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> advertised everywhere. <laughs> And, and that really sort of sums up, I think, what everyone was about at Walthamstow School for Girls. But when I went there, I realised that um, although the outcomes in the school were the best, I think, at the time of all the Waltham Forest secondary schools, I could see that they could be better. And there were too many learners who weren't thriving and were leaving school, not necessarily with the grades or um, qualifications that were going to make it easy for them to be successful and thrive in later life. And I can remember at my interview um, saying that I recognised that the school was a really strong school, but that I thought that it could be even better. And I, I, I kind of developed the mantra, you don't have to be sick to get better. Um, so, so the sorts of things that I really focused on with the staff in those years at Walthamstow, one of them was around building um, students' learning power. And I've been working quite closely with Guy Claxton and others who were interested in the sort of building learning power movement. And although there were some girls at the school who I could see were really strong, independent learners, there weren't enough of them who were like that. So we worked a core group of us, a sort of working group, worked with the staff and the students on, on building their independence, their resilience, their sort of generic lifelong learning skills so that they'd be good communicators, good collaborators, good critical thinkers. Um, so that was a big piece of work, sort of establishing that framework. And I'm really proud that it still exists today, sort of 18 years later, um, those values and those dispositions and habits of mind are still being sort of prioritised at the school. They're now called the green values, which I think is lovely because you know that Walthamstow Girls was known sort of affectionately as the green school after the uniform. Um, so yeah, that was a good thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm interested about is obviously as a new leader, you were going into an established school because like you said, Walthamstow School for Girls was actually very well known in the community. It was an outstanding school. It already had a reputation. Was yeah. it hard to deal with that established culture and staff who had been there for a long time? And were all of them on board with your new vision and strategy when you first started? It's a great question. I took over the headship at quite a difficult time for the school because um, the previous head teacher had been very ill 
and had, um, had eventually passed away. And she had been absent from the school probably for approaching nearly two years by the time that I took up position. So in some ways, I think I was really fortunate because I think the school was naturally looking for some leadership. And I, I can remember thinking that it was a school that was so strong, but was slightly sort of frayed around the edges at the time that I joined. When I went to look around the school before my interview, I'll never forget this, it was a lunchtime and, and one of the staff took me on a tour around the school. And as we sort of went down corridors and, and we could see that there were lots of children kind of in the classrooms at, you know, at lunchtime, I can remember this member of staff knocking on the doors of classrooms and sort of opening the door really gingerly and saying, is it okay if we come in? And inside would be, you know, lots of girls playing music, doing each other's hair, kind of, there was quite a lot of kind of gold bling <laughs> jewellery going on. And I remember thinking, this is a bit weird, you know, the, the staff were asking permission to sort of go into parts of the school. It had a slightly sort of St. Trinian's-y feel to it. And, and there were things <laughs> that were just, just a little bit sort of, you know, out of kilter. So I, I, I think in a way, the staff were quite pleased to have somebody come in and say, okay, this is going to be our direction. These are our non-negotiables. We're going to just tighten up on sort of uniform and jewellery a bit here. And, um, and, and here's the sort of plan for how we might do things a little bit differently. And I think, you know, like in all schools, you have some people who very quickly become converts to your vision and your mission. And, and it's about identifying who they are and getting them on side very quickly. And then they often energise and enthuse the others, don't they? Yeah, definitely. I mean... I agree. Like, obviously, um, you know, when you walk into a school, you can tell the culture of a, you can you can see the culture of a school straight away. And, uh, you know, sometimes it is hard to establish a new vision and strategy um, because of that mantra of we've always done things this yeah. way here. And that can be quite complex because I, I've dealt with that in my leadership um start my leadership um, as well into in the schools that I've gone into. You then went on to um, Isaac Newton Academy in Ilford, which you actually started yourself from scratch. It was an ARC Academy and you were rated outstanding by Ofsted after two years. What was the long-term vision and culture that you wanted in that place? Okay. And I will just say, Sophia, it was the school that was rated outstanding. Okay. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a personal thing. <laughs> um, so that was just the most amazing opportunity. You know, it comes through sort of once in a career, if you're lucky, the opportunity to start something from scratch. And I was doubly fortunate because I had a year of setting up time. Um, so I, I, well, it was a little bit over a year because I was appointed in the spring and the school sort of opened um, sort of 18 months later, but it gave me time to really stop and think, what do I want this school to be about? What's the vision going to be? What's the culture going to be? And I, I wanted the school to be a really high performing school for everyone, a school that recognised all the learners' strengths um, and a school that believed absolutely unswervingly in the potential of all learners to achieve great things with the right support and dedicated targeted teaching and um, you know really good resources and facilities um, so that piece around a sort of growth mindset and a belief in the potential of everybody that was really central to the vision I wanted it to be a school that got great exam outcomes for the students but also developed them as really resilient independent self-regulating learners sort of building on the building learning power work that 
we've done at, at Walthamstow. And I also wanted it to be a school where the alumni would be characterised by their characteristics and their values and their behaviours. I can remember often saying to the staff and the parents and the students, you know, I'll be really proud of you if you leave with a hat full of A stars or nine grades, but I'll be more proud of you if you leave as young people who are identifiable on the streets of Ilford and, um, and further afield by the way you treat people, by the way you behave. Um, because that's really the most important thing we do as educators to set you up with the right moral compass, the right values, the right priorities in life. And that sounds fabulous because I do think that the, you know, both both um, sides are important, the academic and the pastoral as well. How did you how did you develop the team and what successes did you have? And did you make any mistakes? <laughs> OK, so team building was really important because obviously it is fabulous appointing everybody from scratch, but you've got to make sure that the individuals that you appoint will gel together and work smartly and, and effectively um, as, a, as a team. Um, and I was really determined that we would have one united staff team. You know how in lots of staff rooms, there's a sort of hierarchical status, you know, with the teaching staff, or I suppose the senior leaders at the top and then the middle leaders and then the rest of the teaching staff. Yes. And often the, the staff that aren't teachers can feel a bit like second class citizens. And then if you're not careful, the students and the pupils start to view them like that as well. And you then you get, you know, problems. We thought very hard about language and terminology, and I didn't want to call the staff who were not the teaching staff, non-teachers or even support staff. We wanted a term that would give them status. So we called them the operational staff. And we, we always made sure that whenever we did staff training, everybody was there. You know, we included everybody in our social events and it was one united staff team. And we did a huge amount of um, team building activities and communal training and lots of socializing together as well. So that even before the school had opened, in that setup year when we were making appointments in the summer term when most of the appointments were, were in position. I can remember we had two big staff conferences, one up in London at the ARC offices, followed by a, a curry somewhere in, in sort of Hoban. And then for the second one, we took um, all the staff away to Wellington College um, and Anthony Seldon, who was then the, the, the head of, of Wellington College, very kindly put us up. And we did all sorts of team building activities and learning and looking at the vision and values and the policies there in those beautiful grounds of that independent school. And I wanted us to be there because it was a school that, because it was, you know, a fee paying school where families were paying many thousands of pounds a year to send their children. It did customer service and parental relationships really brilliantly. And I wanted to make sure that Isaac Newton as a state comprehensive school would be as, as classy at, at the sort of relationships with parents and the community as a top fee paying independent school. And I can remember Anthony Seldon was so generous. He, um, he led a staff training on the Sunday morning. It was a beautiful morning. The sun was out sort of like today and we were on their lawns and we did trust building activities, you know, the sort of things where you, you know, fall backwards and, and your colleagues catch you. Um, and that sort of set the tone for us doing an awful lot of team building because every year, obviously, we were taking a new cohort of 180 secondary pupils and a new cohort of 90 primary pupils because it was an all through school, which meant that we needed about 30 new staff every year as we built the school up um, to full capacity. 
And again, I didn't want the founding staff to be in any way separate or feeling superior to the new staff and each successive cohort of staff as they came on. So every year we did a staff residential um, where we would go away for a night and spend a couple of days um, doing team planning, but also having fun doing icebreaker activities, doing team games, rallies, competitions, daft things. Um, and that made the team a really strong team. And then- And did you, did Sorry, I was just going to ask, did you do you ever feel that you made any mistakes when it came to hiring at that precise moment when you were in Isaac Newton? Because presumably you're always going to have staff coming in um, and sometimes after staff have come into a school, you realise that they're not really aligned to your vision or not not the kind of staff member that you wanted. Yeah, and it's really important, obviously, when you've only got a few staff because anybody who is sort of swimming against the tide it is potentially going to have quite a big impact because they might be you know the first year one of just 30 staff say um i was really conscious about that sobia and i think i often think i was fortunate to have that job having already had two headships i don't know how i would have coped setting up a new school if it was my first headship and i know some people do do that but i think setting up a new school is a really hard thing to do to get right because you're constantly having to think a couple of years ahead of you know what what you need to be planning for now that's going to unravel in in a couple of years um and i i was fortunate because i'd done a lot of hiring of staff I made sure that I was in on every single staff interview um, and appointment. And we were quite canny. We asked particular questions to really tease out whether the people that we were interviewing were fully aligned to our vision and values. So we would have our sort of staff expectation policy printed out on the table in the interview room. And we'd ask candidates to read it and, and reflect on it and ask us any questions about it. And we'd say, you know, there may be some things here that we are trying to do in our vision that you're, you're a little bit sort of doubtful about, or maybe you don't think it's for you. That's absolutely fine. We'd rather sort of tease that out now than appoint you. And then, you know, you, you don't feel it's a fit for you or we don't feel you're a fit for us. But even having made all of those sort of, um, I don't know, belt and braces sort of measures, there were occasions when um, staff appointments didn't work out. And sometimes that was just teething issues that through sort of really open and candid conversation we could work through. But very occasionally um, it did lead to us parting ways. And I think that's something you have to deal with as a leader and you have to do it with dignity and respect and um, and kindly, but you also have to be clear and stick to your your kind of gut instinct if you know that somebody isn't right for the organisation, I think. And so, obviously, building a new school from scratch, presumably you learnt lots from that. Uh, it, was your, it was not your first headship, but you, you had done several headships beforehand. What were the most important lessons you learnt from that? Yeah. And you asked earlier as well whether I made mistakes. And yes, definitely I made mistakes. Um, and although we tried really hard to preempt what we needed to know and do well ahead of time, there were occasions where, you know, we got caught out. And also, I think when you're starting a school from scratch, you need to you need to run it quite tightly. And I was quite aware that 
where the school was in Redbridge was a very high performing area in terms of education. Yes, we were of course. Found outstanding schools. We were serving a community that was passionate about education and families that really knew the value of education, which was fantastic. I couldn't really afford for the school not to be a really great success. And I can remember as we anticipated our first Ofsted inspection thinking, well, you know, most of the schools around us have got an outstanding grading. If we don't get an outstanding grading, then that's going to be, you know, potentially problematic. So they were quite high stakes, I suppose. But that meant that I, I ran the school, led the school in a way that was quite quite tight you know we we required staff to have very detailed um, schemes of learning because obviously they were they were new they were writing them every year for the first time we required in the early days every lesson to have a formal lesson plan and for those lesson plans to be you know shared up on a central area and that was a big big commitment from staff and a big ask from us really as leaders even in the early days when we were really small staff I can remember saying to staff, look, I need you to inform somebody or just check with somebody if you need to go off site during the school day. Now, you know, in a big school, you know, when you have sort of 150, 200 staff, you wouldn't expect staff to ask permission to go off site, you know, to go down to the post office or whatever at their lunchtime. But I felt we, we sort of had to make sure that we'd got the site covered because there were so few of us and it was such a big site. So there were certain things that were sort of unusually tight and almost a bit sort of micromanaging and when I reflect on my seven years at INA I, I tried as the years went on to loosen the reins as we got bigger and more like a sort of normal school but I'm not sure in retrospect that I loosened quickly enough in certain places and at certain times or allowed people the freedoms to do things differently from the the general sort of school way as much as I could have done that's a really difficult one because we did have to make sure that we got it right and you know we were building a school and the, and the new school is very fragile initially but I'm sure if you talk to colleagues of mine you know during those seven years they would say you know at times they felt you know, the restrictions were, were, were perhaps too much. And the other thing I'd say, Sobia, is that I don't think leaders can ever praise or thank staff enough. And I think when I look back at the phenomenal hard work that my colleagues at that school did with me in order for us collectively to um, enable that really exciting vision, it was really, really hard work. And I know I did thank yeah. people, and I did it regularly, but I'm not sure I, I did it enough. I think sometimes, because I know it happens to me as a leader as well, sometimes when you're in the moment and you're you're preparing things, especially when it's a project, you get so involved in that project that sometimes you forget that you've got to do X, Y, Z. And yeah. it's very easy for people on the outside to criticise and say, oh, she didn't thank me or whatever. But sometimes you have to remember as a leader, you are going to be making mistakes and it is important for staff to remember that as well because not everyone is perfect um, and I think some of the best leaders that I've worked for have been humble and they have understood that you know there have been occasions where they have been wrong but they've gone back to that member of staff and they've said you know what I put my hands up I was wrong this is how it should have been let's try it again and I think that kind of that that supportive environment is encouraging for staff because it makes you feel like you are part of a team um, and 
you know, it just makes you feel a bit more valued because we'll come on to this a bit later on. But I think there's a, a really important matter in schools, even right now, after the pandemic and everything that's happened in relation to discretionary effort, for example. Yeah. Yes. I mean, do you feel, I mean, a lot of staff put in a lot of hours, especially dedicated staff, they go above and beyond. They do a lot of discretionary effort. And a lot of school leaders ask for it as well. We want goodwill. We want discretionary effort. And a lot of staff are willing to do that. But sometimes you don't get much back from the school. And I think as leaders, it's important for us to recognise and remember that, that it is a two-way relationship and not just one way. I totally agree. And I think that there are times when you really need to be able to rely on your staff to step up and help and go the extra mile. And obviously, we've seen that at various points during the last two years with the pandemic, haven't we? People doing extraordinary things and, and, you know, adapting their job descriptions and working with families and communities in a way in which they never would have imagined they would be doing, you know, when they were training. But it is important that the school recognizes back and pays back and makes exceptions and can be flexible with requests for time off for certain family related matters or you know flexibility about potentially keeping a job open for somebody to go and take a sabbatical or um, do some traveling or or finding some extra money to support somebody on a course or some training they want to do Um, yeah and I totally agree with what you were saying Sophia about um, showing yourself as a human who's vulnerable and makes mistakes. And one of the lovely things that um, staff were great at doing at Isaac Newton Academy and Walthamstow Girls was showing their human side to the students. And I, I'm a great believer in that, talking really openly in assemblies, in lessons, you know, just informally around the school about the things that you're working on as a learner yourself. And, you know, we're all learners and we, we're all imperfect in terms of you know, our toolkit and resources of, of learning. And we used to, at Isaac Newton, have little um, cards that we put on our office or classroom doors telling the students what we were working at trying to get better at um, so that the students knew that, you know, we, we, were, we were working on our learning power and our, our learning skills as well. And I think that's great. That's really good. I like that. Um, as a leader, then, how did you support your staff to eliminate barriers for learning? So let's talk about um, detailed um, teaching and learning. How do you ensure that all staff are committed to high performance and influence the ones who aren't uh, when it comes to teaching and learning? Yeah. So that's something that I've been interested in for years and years, how you create that sort of culture of high performance, because there are some schools that do it really, really well. And year after year, you look at their outcomes and, you know, they're not um, necessarily schools in, in advantaged areas. They're not serving catchments with, you know, high prior attaining um, profiles necessarily, but they just create the environment in which everybody can thrive. And that was what we, we worked really hard um, on doing at, at Walthamstow and at Isaac Newton. And, and I think you the, the first thing is you have to make that vision a really compelling, exciting vision so that it, it's so sort of infectious that nobody could possibly want to resist it if they are in their right mind. And I think it was Martin Luther King who said, you know, you, you sing your dream into existence. And so you have to believe in it absolutely steadfastly as a leader. And you have to talk about that vision and the the end goal 
almost sort of relentlessly, but in a constantly sort of refreshed and revised way. Uh, so it's almost like you have your elevator pitch and you, you find every possible opportunity to communicate it to people in the, in the right way. And then you have to you have to acknowledge that it's not easy. There's no point saying we want, you know, all our learners to leave with great GCSE results and just, you know, almost suggest that it's going to happen by osmosis or it's really easy. You have to say, but we recognise this is really hard and therefore we're going to put in place time for training, really good support, great coaching, um, interventions to, to help uh, along the way. And I think you have to say, we've got to invest time in identifying what those barriers are because the, the barriers to, to learning are obviously different for every individual student and in every different case. And you've really got to invest time to forensically explore what those individual barriers are and then to put in place smart action plans. And that really goes down to a, an individual level. So you, you need to support class teachers to be able to see their 30 children in front of them as individuals and know know each one quite in, intensely I suppose as a learner and have the repertoire and the skills and the tools to be able to take each learner on to the next stage of their journey and sometimes that's about making sure in the school you've invested in the resource to get to know the families as well because you know we know that our learners spend a fraction of their uh, their living hours actually with us in school and so much more of their time is spent with their families sort of outside of school. And so if we're really smart about unlocking barriers to learning, we've also got to see families, parents, older siblings, carers as co-educators and make sure that we're supporting families to be in this learning journey with us and, and helping to, to shift uh, sort of blockages and barriers where they exist. And Obviously, now you are Director of Education Services, so you've moved on from Isaac Newton Academy and you, yeah. you were successful there because, you know, uh, you, you know, the school did re receive an outstanding grade. Um, what kind of strategic planning are you involved in and what does strategic leadership mean to you? So it's slightly different, but it's it's in many ways very similar. So I suppose my team are all about designing training and consultancy and products that will help school teachers and school leaders with their school improvement priorities. And so we have to be really nimble and adaptable to current needs and current context. And obviously the last couple of years have been a classic example of that. So when, when schools... Um, closed for many learners during the lockdown periods we had to completely rethink the way that we provided support because you know we weren't going into schools and doing face-to-face -face consultancy for significant periods of of those covid sort of two years um, but, but what schools really wanted then was support around constructing risk assessments and model letters you know for communicating with parents and help with digital learning and all the sort of you know immediate priorities that that sprung up there. With the sort of changing and evolving landscape in terms of um, MATS and SATS and maintained schools, we've been working over the last few years to make sure that we've got really bespoke and 
appropriate school improvement services for mats to support say mats that are large enough to have a central education team themselves so that we're supporting with sort of train the trainer models rather than necessarily going into individual schools if it's if it's supporting a mat and then you know every time the inspection framework changes again we need to amend and adapt our services and our provision to make sure that we're supporting with the priorities in, in the new framework. So we've been doing an awful lot of work supporting schools with their curriculum sequencing and planning and you know the three I's. In, in the last sort of six, eight months, we've done quite a lot of work on developing resources and training around harmful sexual behavior, you know, after the um, sexual abuse report yeah. from, from last May. So it's similar in a way. It, it's just on a on a larger scale, I suppose, in terms of working with large numbers of schools. Yeah, I mean, when I'm when I'm talking to um, other leaders within my context, or even when I when I'm training myself, this question comes up a lot: What is strategic leadership? And one of the things that I always say is that it's the ability to visualize, plan, and lead, and obviously making the best out of the resources that you've got. Because at the end of the day, you have a strategy to execute, and you need to be able to execute it efficiently and successfully. And part of that is um, working with with the curriculum and you're bringing essentially a vision to life so um how did you develop your strategic thinking skills and especially for women how should women be showing up strategically in the workplace yeah two great questions I think when I look back, I've been really fortunate to have worked with and, and therefore to have learned from some really strong strategic thinkers. And some of them have been head teachers in schools that I've worked in, but some of them have been um, staff who've held perhaps more junior positions, but they're just great strategists. Um, and then I, I've prioritised doing further study. So you know, I did a, an MA in education management, which really helped me in my early years as a teacher to think strategically. Um, the MPQH helped me. And when um, I was ahead in London, I did quite a lot of work with London Challenge and then the London Leadership Strategy. And I did some great training as a consultant leader, which helped my thinking and improved my practice. And then I suppose I've just always tried to make time to read. And I've learned loads from reading books by education leaders, but also by leaders outside of the world of education. Um, and hearing great leaders speak at conferences and events. And of course, in my current role, I spend quite a lot of time planning and organizing conferences, but that means that I get this wonderful, rich array of free CPD, sort of barely a week goes by when I'm not being inspired by listening to somebody. And I think one of the exciting things that's come out of the pandemic is there are now just a plethora, aren't there, of, of webinars and online events that people can log into at twilight times. Oh, or listen definitely. To after the event. <laughs> but, you know, you, if you want to learn about strategic leadership, there's just a wealth of places you can go. Yeah. Um, in terms of women as strategic leaders and, and what's out there to inspire women, I mean, I think that when I compare now to sort of 30 Five years ago when I first came into the profession I think there are far more strong women leaders who provide inspiration to women but there are still areas and we mustn't sort of forget this where education leadership is still really dominated by men I was talking mm. to um, a, a female head teacher friend of mine recently who said in her London borough she's the only female secondary head 
Wow. Um, that sort of staggered me, but I don't think it's perhaps as uncommon as we might think. Um, and I think it's essential that women in education who are interested in becoming leaders, they have to believe in themselves and therefore they have to make sure that they've got strong women who are around them acting as champions. Um, I, I would advise women to, to ensure that they have a coach and to explore that they, to ensure that they talk to their line manager about their aspirations and their career plans and make sure that they've got somebody who's helping them with that journey. Um, and, and then to explore women into leadership courses and conferences um, and some of the EDI fora that are out there that are so great. And, and I think really importantly too, to make sure that they're calling out any sexism or misogyny that they experience or they witness or they see. Um, and there are some great books around how to do that. I, I really like the book that came out last year by Kim Scott called Just Work, which talks about the language to use and the strategies to use to call out sexism in the workplace. Um, mm. But there, there are lots of others too. I think, you know, uh, you, when I'm looking at my own leadership journey, I'm thinking, um, I agree with everything that you've said, because, you know, I've had to take those actions as well. And there's lots of listeners who are my friends and um, who are female leaders who are also listening as well. Um, you know, being able to think strategically, having a vision is really important, because obviously, when I'm looking at my department, I have to think three to five years ahead, what I'm what I'm bringing into my yeah. department, what communication like what my communication skills have to be really really good to make sure that my staff understand clearly what I'm asking them to do making sure that strategic planning is in place one of the things that I, I feel that I do enjoy doing is looking at systems in schools because I think it's really important and I think women need to be very very vocal um, but in a in a strategic way um, to make it clear that you know there's a system that's perhaps not working effectively in school maybe get together with a working party and try and see if you can solve that problem for the senior yeah. leadership team um, making sure that you've got strategic agility so your long-term vision is you know translated into daily objectives um emotional intelligence <laughs> being able to deal with um different people uh in different ways because not everyone's the same uh, and then obviously being able to execute uh, and being transparent and having integrity I've, i think one of the things that i've found very disruptive and in some cases disheartening in some contexts that i've worked in previously is when leaders aren't clear and they yes. think their communication is clear, but it hasn't been. And I think there's this really fabulous quote from Brené Brown. And actually, my, my leadership coach says this all the time as well, that being clear is kind. If your staff don't know what you're trying to get towards or how you're going to get there, they're not going to be able to do um, the things that you're asking them of. So I think for me, I've, I've kind of learned how to uh, deal with certain people. And I think one of the things... Uh, and I don't know if you'll agree with me on Rachel, you could probably perhaps um, correct me if I'm wrong. When you're thinking strategically, you're not only thinking about the present, but you're also, in a sense, thinking about the future as well. And sometimes it can get difficult to predict the future. Um, and when I'm when I'm thinking three to five years ahead, I have to really evaluate every single year what I was able to do, what I wasn't able to do. Uh, 
and you know have a risk management in place and maybe challenge what's actually happening in the school as well yeah. at times I totally agree with you I think you know you talked about why all those kind of component parts or facets of strategic behavior and it's so complex isn't it I totally agree yeah. that when you're thinking strategically you've got to be in the present but also in the future and I also think you have to be a little bit in the past too because you have to constantly go back and evaluate whether the initiatives and the actions you put in place had the desired impact and and resulted in the things that you expected they would so you're operating in all three time domains I think aren't you yeah and in terms of when you were leading and when you were like thinking about streamlining processes um, to boost strategic productivity and innovation, yeah. um, what kind of things did you think about when you were putting together your strategic plans for school improvement and how did you ensure it was executed properly? So I think we made sure that we were constantly, whatever we were planning, and however far in the future it was and however clearly determined that future was or however precarious it was because of you know, external factors, we always came back to our vision and our values. And we had a, a sort of core mission statement that we would test everything against. And we would say, you know, is this gonna help us to ultimately achieve our vision, take us in the direction that we've said is really important. And for us, it was the three things about developing um, uh, knowledge, learning power and character and so anything we were planning we wanted to test that it was going to improve students knowledge, improve their learning power and, and make them sort of better people and we tried to I suppose say no to certain things that we felt weren't going to take us in that direction and then make sure that other initiatives were going to lead us in that way um, as smoothly and clearly as possible um but but it is hard as you say because sometimes you have a sense of where you want to go but you know that there are going to be unknown variables sort of hitting you from left right and center along the journey there was a study rachel and yeah those unknown variables can be quite hard because <laughs> you have to learn from them <laughs> um and, and that's what makes leadership i guess when you learn from the the setbacks that you've had uh, and then carry on moving forward after having learned from them um there was a study of senior executives and this was from a pwc um and they they said that their senior executives found that there is a shortage of strategic leaders across industries which are leading transformational change. And the the fact the bit that I found interesting was when they said that strategic leaders are most likely to be women, particularly those at 45 and above. And I found that quite interesting that even though women are strategically, uh, are able to think strategically, we're not able to get into those top senior roles as easily. Yeah, yeah. But, but we need strategic leaders at all levels, don't we? And of all ages and, you know, genders and uh, ethnicities. And, you know, so we, and this is, I think, why I've always believed so much that our role as educators is about far more than just getting students through exams because we've got to be building those skills of strategic leadership in our children you know right from the age of four or five when they join us in the early years and prioritizing the developing of those and 
you know, that's about making sure that young people can work collaboratively and in teams together, that they can think outside of the box, that they can be creative and imaginative and curious and asking questions as they go along. You know, we, we don't want to be just um, force feeding our children like automatons into understanding exam syllabuses and being able to regurgitate them in writing in exams. We, we won't have great strategic thinkers who are men and women and people over and under 45 unless we educate in a way that's going to produce those in the future, I think. And um, one of the things that I wanted to really know about is when you're thinking strategically about everyone uh, who's working in the school, what about other stakeholders like the governing body? How do you ensure that they were all you know, agreed to your vision and your outline of how you wanted to run the school? Well, I think it has to be a collective vision. I mean, they've, they've got to be involved every step of the way. So it isn't a case um, of you decide as a leader with your staff or your senior leadership team on what the vision is going to be and then you sell it to the governors. I think you, it has to be co-created if it's going to be really owned by everybody. And I can remember when Isaac Newton started up, um, the chair of governors appointed me. And then it was literally for a while, just the two of us. We were the only two sort of um, people, people connected with the school. And we sat down on numerous occasions and discussed and talked about and sometimes argued about what the vision was going to be. And it, no kidding, it probably took us three months to come up with the one sentence that was our sort of vision strap line because we poured over every <laughs> word. Can, and yeah. you, you can imagine, can't you? And so yeah. I, governors and trustees are really fundamentally important. And it, it's vital, I think, that they feel fully involved um, and, and not just there to you know to approve things or rubber stamp things um, they because they play such an important role in asking those strategic questions the sort of killer questions of a head teacher or a leader that makes them really stop and think about what they're doing and why and why they're investing effort and energies in certain things a really strong chair of governors or trust leader is absolutely invaluable to a school leader however experienced they are or or strong they might think they are I think yeah. Um, for those listeners who are interested in strategic leadership, there is a really good diagram, a Pendleton Venn diagram from 2012, which goes through the strategic, operational and interpersonal um, diagrams, which shows different areas of school leadership that you should be looking at in order to uh, maintain um, whole school, in order to ensure main, whole school improvement is good. Um, one of the things that they talk about is setting down the direction, making sure you translate strategy into action, aligning people within your organisation to your strategy, strategic interventions, so thinking about timing of when you do things and change management, and also thinking about the strategic capabilities of your staff and your organisation. Rachel, you've you've written a book called Obstetrics for Schools. Can you give us a, a brief overview about it and what made you write this particular book? Yes, so strange title, hey? Um, <laughs> I, I wrote this book during lockdown, during the first lockdown, and weirdly it took me exactly nine months to write it, which given that you know, it has this analogy about schools being a bit like obstetrics wards was sort of slightly appropriate. Um, the book is about how 
as school leaders, you can create a high performing culture in your school, how you can make that a reality and how you can create a scenario where everybody, practically virtually everybody as a learner leaves the school as a success and ready and prepared for later life and to thrive and flourish and be happy in later life. And, and the reason that I called it Obstetrics for Schools is I got really interested at the beginning of the pandemic in the history of obstetrics and childbirth and safe delivery of, of infants. And I read a figure that um, said that in 1800, the global infant mortality rate, that's the, you know, the, the number of children who sadly don't make it to their second birthday, was 43%. So, you know, back in 1800, nearly half the babies um, delivered failed either to survive childbirth or to, to survive into you know, beyond the age of two. And due to all sorts of improvements in medicine, you know, antiseptics, anaesthetics, better um, pre and postnatal care, better health and diet, better training of, of doctors and medics, etc. That came right down to in 2015, um, just uh, just 0.4% in the UK. So we know, sadly, tragically, there are, you know, the few occasional exceptions, but virtually now, you know, um, all children make it to, to their second birthday, thankfully. And even in um, parts of the world with far less developed healthcare, it's still a, you know, very rare, tragic exception that a child doesn't survive. And yet when you compare that with educational um fatality rates if you like that sounds dramatic but children who leave school leave primary school having not met age-related expectations in reading writing maths or leave secondary school without strong passes or even standard passes in English and maths and, and other subjects you know we're still grappling with a third of our children leaving school almost sort of technically as failures um, according to our exam system and that's just really tragic and I, I was just fascinated in why as a society, we don't make more of a sort of outcry about that because if our fatality rates in medicine were anything like that, you know, there would be absolute sort of outcry and the national scandals. Um, so the book is about how the schools that do manage to really reduce education fatalities to an absolute minimum, how, how they do it. And so I take a chapter at a time, a different feature in each chapter so there's a chapter around great teaching and learning a chapter around training a chapter around developing metacognition one around developing great um, relationships with students and parents one around making um, transitions from primary school to secondary school and other points in your education journey much smoother and then there's a chapter around what we were talking about earlier how you identify the barriers and how you smartly address different barriers so sort of action planning and an evaluation um yeah so that's that's really what this, the book's all about and based on everything that you've said today i mean absolutely fabulous you've you've worked your way up to headship you've done several headships you've been successful in that role you're you're now a director for education services what's next for you hmm. so at, at work at hearts for learning we're very busy at the moment uh, with a suite of initiatives, which we're calling Coming Back Stronger, and their um, activities and support to help schools at this particular moment in time, you know, as we're coming out of the pandemic and we're sort of dusting ourselves down and looking at the state of education and what the priorities are. So we're working on supporting um, with early years and primary reading. 
we're working on helping schools around issues of safeguarding and harmful sexual behaviors. We're helping schools with um, closing gaps where gaps have opened, with well-being support, with working really effectively with parents, because I don't know about you, Sobia, but we're experiencing a number of schools um, who are saying to us, in the early days of the pandemic, parents were really working tightly and closely with us, but now sort of a couple of years in, they're just exhausted. And um, sometimes yeah. the frustrations are manifesting themselves in school and, you know, parents being quite challenging in their expectations or their behaviors with school leaders. And that then knocking into um, teachers feeling very sort of bruised and, um, and, and hurt by sort of toxic parental relationships when they go wrong. So we're working with schools around that. And then yeah, I think parental engagement is very important. Very, very yeah, important. Really, really important at this moment. And then having written the Obstetrics for Schools book, I've got the writing bug and I'm halfway through writing another book. And this is going to oh. be um, a book to support school leaders in the area of race equity. Um, so it's all about how to create a culture and systems to to make your school anti-racist, strive to make your school anti-racist. And it's using case studies of really inspiring practice from um, dozens of schools that I've been working with over the last couple of years around this agenda. And it incorporates interviews with um, a large number of really inspiring teachers of colour who I've been fortunate enough to work with and learn from over the years about their experiences um, and their their thoughts and messages for school leaders. So yes, I'm deep in that at the moment. I'm hoping that that will be finished around about um, late summer. Rachel, that all sounds fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm actually very, very grateful and humbled that you agreed to come on to the show. Um, it's been a it's been an absolute delight to host you today. It's been great to be with you. Um, I think your show's fabulous and it's been lovely to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Sobia. No problem at all. Thank you so much. Please do keep in touch and I'm hoping that you visit us again sometime as well. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Right. Okay. Um, we're going to head over to the news. And next up, we've got Julian Hall, who is the founder and CEO of Ultra Education. And he's an award-winning entrepreneur. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development 
every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb Digital Portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Multiple media outlets report on comments made by Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi in a Times Radio interview. In the interview, Mr Zahawi dismissed calls to ban smacking of children by parents in England. In Wales, following the introduction of the Children Abolition of Defence of Reasonable Punishment Act, parents who tap a toddler on the behind risk arrest and a criminal record. Children's Commissioner Rachel D'Souza expressed admiration for the ban in Wales and stated she would be supportive if the government in England decided to do the same. In response to Dame Rachel's comments, Mr Zahawi told Times Radio, My very strong view is that actually we have got to trust parents on this and parents being able to discipline their children is something that they should be entitled to do. He went on to outline how his wife had occasionally disciplined their nine-year-old daughter with a light smack on the arm. While some groups have come out in support of what they call the Education Secretary's common sense approach, others have condemned his comments as out of touch. Earlier this week, Mr Zahawi also sparked discussion following comments reported in The Telegraph, which outlined his views that schools have a duty to inform parents if their child identifies as transgender. The comments prompted a wealth of concerns about the safeguarding implications of such an act. His comments on smacking are likely to lead to similar concerns. Following last month's publication of the Safeguarding Report on the case of Child Q, a number of local authorities have received freedom of information requests for details on strip searches carried out in their area. Data is being requested following the release of details about the searching of Child Q, who was taken out of an exam and strip search by two female officers while teachers waited outside. The Now Then magazine for Sheffield reports that South Yorkshire Police have received FOI requests as a result of the Child Q case. The case raised a number of questions around safeguarding, duty of care and the treatment of young people of colour by both police and schools. 
In the Channel Islands of Jersey, mask wearing and the need to work in classroom bubbles will be scrapped from Monday the 25th of April, according to ITV News. Government data suggests there has been a decrease in the number of cases on island. However, there is also a warning that measures could return if the cases escalate. Other measures such as enhanced hygiene and increased ventilation will remain in place. In Africa, the news website This Day reports on the launch of the Africa Education Medal, which recognises the work of educators in transforming education across the continent. It is aimed at telling the stories of those who have lit the spark of change and is open to all individuals working to improve the sector from pre-kindergarten to university education. The medal is launched by T4 Education in collaboration with HP and Intel. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at technology and supporting us getting lunch. Why? Because I asked every teacher I met last week if they had lunch regularly, and most of them said no. The reason being, they're too busy most days. Now, right off the bat, I'm not going to discuss any types of diet. This is just about getting lunch. Simple ways to get calories in to power the body. As always, I've tested these things out for you and added my humble opinion. First, and with zero extra cost, using the technology of the freezer. You can freeze a sandwich. I quite like this idea as it stopped me eating a sandwich in the car on the way to a school. If I know a sandwich is there, it calls to me. Calls to me. Calls. It being frozen meant I had to wait. The downside is making the sandwich. However, throwing 10 slices of bread down, adding filling and then into a Ziploc bag would be quite easy on a Sunday evening. You might need quite a bit of space in your freezer though. Next, I used a trusty thermos mug and noodles. I thought it was a good idea, but unlike a sandwich that you can eat on the go, I needed a fork and then had to consider not dripping it on my tie, so I actually had to stop and eat. So not as simple as a frozen sandwich, but I did have a hot lunch. Now hold on to your hats. I tried this again. I did enjoy a hot lunch, so I smashed the noodles up before I put the water in the second time around. That day, I drank my lunch. No need to find a fork, lid off, quick swig of noodles, genius. The downside I can see is washing the mug. I know I'll find it on the draining board waiting to be washed when I want to get out the door. Finally, I tried a snack bar. You can get these quite cheap online and you can find them to match most dietary needs. It was definitely the easiest option, but would be the most expensive over time. For me, it didn't feel as lunch-like, if I was being totally honest, but it did the job of rapid calorie input on the go. So, in conclusion, if you're not having lunch, why not try one of these ideas? You will definitely feel better for it. P.S. I googled International Lunch Day and it actually exists. However, it's on the 10th of March, so we've missed it. Gutted. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you have for your lunch. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. Another fabulous guest. I've got Julian Jules Hall, who's the founder and CEO of Ultra Education, whose vision is to ensure all children and young people, regardless of background, have access to entrepreneurial education. He's featured in Forbes, The Telegraph, The BBC, The Guardian, and he's a regular contributor to the Express newspaper. Jules, can you hear me? We might have a bit of problems getting through to Jules because we had a bit of tech issues this morning. Just give me a moment. Good morning, Jules. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Yeah, for some reason my mic isn't working on the on the app. Uh, don't worry about it. You're live on the studio in the studio now. <laughs> Can- <laughs> 
Brilliant. Jules, can you tell everybody um, what you do and how you got into entrepreneurship? Sure. So I run a seven-year-old social enterprise called Ultra Education, and we exist to use the vehicle of entrepreneurship to increase the life chances of children and young people um, who suffer mainly from disadvantage, be it through socioeconomics, be it through um, ethnicity, race, um, the postcode that, that they live in. Uh, and we are you know, a very small, passionate team who are on a mission, as, as you rightfully said in the introduction, to uh, provide effective entrepreneurial education, um, which is up to date, which is engaging, um, and which has, you know, the, the necessary learning outcomes to be able to really deeply impact the lives of young people. How I got into entrepreneurship, um, that's a really great question. Uh, I'm what uh, some entrepreneurs and describe themselves as an accidental entrepreneur. Um, it wasn't written in the cards for me necessarily um but when i was 18 years old i started my my first business and that gave me the skills uh, in in retrospect to then get into um uh, investment banking which i did for some for some time um and really what it did was it gave me the the skill set and the mindset to be able to navigate um, my own um, circumstance. So, as an example, I um, I was born and raised in Brent, which is northwest London, and boys of Caribbean heritage, of which I am, are amongst the lowest performing in the entire country. And you know, lots of work is being done to address that, but it would appear that because of my early experience with entrepreneurship, that I completely broke that statistic. And so, you know, winding back, I kind of look at um, what entrepreneurship and what entrepreneurial skill sets and mindset did for me um, and wanted to reverse engineer that so that it wasn't accidental and that children and young people have ready access to it. Okay, so Jules, my... my the things that I really want to know, because obviously I'm head of business and I ha I teach enterprise and entrepreneurship. What are your thoughts on entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial activity in this country? Are we good at it or do we need to nurture it more? And why do you think entrepreneurs are important to the UK? Yeah, so, I mean, for those of my generation, so if you're in your maybe uh, late 30s, 40s, 50s, um, you remember the only reference that I had to an entrepreneur when I was growing up was Del Boy from Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> and as as funny as he was, he was he was a caricature of, of entrepreneurs. Um, and the and then the other example we had was maybe the, the Alan Sugars and Richard Branson's. And the trouble with those archetypes were that. Um, they, they didn't seem attainable to, to the rest of us. It seemed as if entrepreneurs were sprinkled with magic dust at birth and that if you were lucky or if you had a dad that could give you, you know, lots of money to start up or if you went to the right school, you know, there were all these barriers put in front of it. So for that reason, um, entrepreneurship hasn't been nurtured in this country, not to children across the board. There isn't, there hasn't been a, an open level playing field that has invited uh, 
entrepreneurs from every walk of life. However, what tends to happen, if you speak to uh, lots of entrepreneurs, many of them will tell you they didn't have a great time in school. And they didn't know it at the time, but some of them may have had uh, special educational needs. Some of them may have had, you know, um, what would be classed today as, as ADHD. They couldn't sit still. Um, or they just, their learning style, they were, they were neurodiverse outside of the, um, you know, the framework of, of education. And uh, as much as education has improved um, since the last few decades, um, it has been quite strict in the way it, it, it approaches learning and development. And that's not for everyone. So the reason I say all of that is when you say, you know, are we doing a good job of entrepreneurship in this country? Um, across the world, the, the, you know, it's not as if, you know, our American cousins are better at entrepreneurship than we are, or you see lots of people in developing countries who just seem to have a natural knack for it. It isn't that. It's how it's the, the environment that people are raised in will often shape how they respond to the world. And in this country, we're built on institution. We're not built on entrepreneurship. Um, in America, they're built on entrepreneurship. That's just how, you know, their society for the last, you know, num X number of decades has been built. So, but, but if you then think about it, the, the lifeblood of the British economy is small business, right? And so... Uh, it's those small businesses who keep the high streets going. It's those small businesses who, who hire um, and provide work and training opportunities for people. Um, and it's those small businesses who grow into big businesses and, you know, um, do all of that again, but in at a larger scale. Um, when you think about innovation, when you think about um, you know, disrupting and, and problem solving and coming up with solutions to issues that this country faces, that requires entrepreneurial thinking. It requires um, a new approach. It requires change makers. It requires visionaries and leaders. And all of those things are, you know, wrap the onion of entrepreneurship um, that we, you know, experience today. And so for that reason, um, entrepreneurship is extremely important. It isn't just about setting up a business and becoming rich and letting everyone do the work for you. It, it absolutely has nothing to do with that. Entrepreneurship today is about solving problems for people, for the world, making um, our environments and um, you know the, the sectors and the places and spaces that we live and work in better, and using new pro new solutions to solve new problems, not using old solutions to solve new problems which is you know a lot of what's been happening and, and so jules sorry to interrupt you there um a couple of things i was reading the report about the global entrepreneur from the global entrepreneurship monitor and this is a very um this is a worldwide organization that does write about entrepreneurship quite regularly and it actually said in there that the uk falls across most measures of entrepreneurial activity uh, and this was written in 2020 and um it, the report went on to say that the pandemic spurred more activity from 7.6 in 2019 to 8.2 in 2020 of more small businesses coming uh, into fruition and there's a lot of demand from people uh, based on the great resignation who do want to start their own businesses to increase their financial wealth wealth and some are just some people are just you know thinking about changing their life goals and priorities now if we look at uber and airbnb 
they opened up during a recession and it, 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 you know a lot of people say no no don't open up a small business during recession but actually there's greater openness to innovation and market disruption um, around that time and I was also reading and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this but the government's leveling white paper of leveling up and um, Mark Hart who's the professor of small business and entrepreneurship at Aston Business School uh, and he's also the leader of this GEM UK team, he said that entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial activity is essential to the recovery of the pandemic. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I think what the pandemic has done is it has accelerated what many entrepreneurs saw as what would be the norm for the future of the country. So pre-pandemic, um, lots of papers and researchers were pointing towards the gig economy as being on the rise. You know, people who would um, either online uh, set, set themselves up as freelance workers or people who would have, you know, mobile hairdressers or barbers or plumbers, ind independent um, service providers who were working on things like Fiverr or TaskRabbit. And we saw this explosion in individuals who are um, developing their own side hustles or who are, you know, thinking about doing things differently um, in, in their workspace and seeing how they can take that out and, and do it bigger. Um, when we were now locked down, what it did was it caused people to have to stop and think about, one, what it is they really want to do, two, the value that, that they want to add in the world, and three, it, it pronounced the challenge of how do we make money in this in this new environment right and how do we use technology to be able to do that um and and i think lastly and this is you know part of the core elements of entrepreneurship and when we teach this to our kids and young people it's um what problem are you solving? And and the pandemic was a huge problem for lots of people, whether you wanted to keep fit, whether you wanted to get your hair cut, whether you wanted to um, support your mental health and well-being. These were all problems that required immediate solutions. And so you had these amazing people in the country who were spinning up, creating these solutions um, for all of us. And that's what entrepreneurship did. And, and so it highlighted that it is possible to, for, for the average person to, who was passionate about a particular problem to come up with a product or service that could, that, that could serve that issue. But that's not going away just because of the pandemic. We still have problems day to day. The environment's changing. So new problems are springing up all over the place. And so we absolutely, um, as a gentleman from Aston University has said, um, we absolutely do need um, an, a, a real entrepreneurial approach to how we can make society better and how we can experience the world in a much more effective but also enjoyable way. And what do you think are the constraints with regards to entrepreneurial activity? Yeah, so, you know, the, the other thing which happened across, um, you know, the, the pandemic was um, the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And what that highlighted was the um, was inequalities across the board. OK, and so you've got um, companies like Google and lots of other investment firms who are an innovative capital angel groups who are now admitting that for decades, 
um, funding has been um, disproportionately um, allocated and that if you are a minority or a female founder, that you were much less likely to be able to access funding. And we're talking about, you know, very, very low percentages. So if so that that is that is an absolute barrier. Access to uh, kind of finance, funding and support to be able to scale um, and make sustainable your ideas. And and this could even just be for social entrepreneurs as well. So those who were to access some funding across the board has been an absolute barrier. Um, another barrier, I think, is in the way in which um, young people, children and young people are um, in, in the way in which adults, whether it's parents or teachers, frame entrepreneurship for them and whether or not um, they allow them to believe that entrepreneurship is accessible, right? And so um, the, there was a number of experiments which have been done which have looked at uh, the way in which a teacher views the attainment of their group and if they deem that the group of students that they're working with um, um, can do well, then the way in which the teacher responds to that group, um, it differs from the way in which a teacher would respond to a group that they didn't think was going to do well, right? So um, if you think that your students can be entrepreneurs, then you will enable them. If you don't think they can, then you won't. And we've seen this time and time again, and this isn't just for teachers, this is for parents as well. So this is what we, we call this an enabling environment, right? So um, when I often hear from people that uh, young people, that, that children and teens don't have passions or aspirations, it's not true. What they don't want to do is share it with the parent or the teacher because it will be minimised, right? And so what we need to do is we need to create these safe environments so that that barrier, that, that immediate barrier, because the first place or space that a child or a, or a young person is going to express um, their ambition for wanting to start a project or business or wanting to become an entrepreneur is in the home or, or at school. And if that is shut down, then often they have nowhere else to go. And so I think, you know, those are some of the barriers that, um, that we've seen in our work and that, and that I think need to be addressed. And I think that kind of moves me nicely on to other barriers. I mean, you've mentioned uh, a lot of them, but I think when you're reading the government's white paper on levelling up, one of the key things that did come out of there, uh, you know, is about environment. Um, and one of the things that they've said is that the UK is concentrated in entrepreneurship within London. So a lot of us um, in London... Uh, very good at entrepreneurship um, up against Tel Aviv and Silicon Valley. So London is the hotbed for entrepreneurship um, and the labour skills um, moving outside of London aren't, you know, people aren't moving outside of London because this is where the hotbed of entrepreneurial activity is. And I think, um, I mean, obviously, Jules, correct me if I'm wrong. Most businesses, um, you know, fail within the first five years if they're not you know led or organized properly um and they they struggle with scaling up and i think those kind of skills you don't really learn at school as such 
Um, I have seen, however, Jules, lots of lots of organisations in higher education who are now offering entrepreneurial degrees. So they, these are specific degrees in entrepreneurship. For example, UCL have got a UCL Entrepreneurs Network, which I go to regularly and I attend. Um, and there are, you know, there are ph- phenomenal things happening in higher education. What's your take on schools um, and what more can be done? Great question, and I've sat around this for a number for a number of years now. And before we started Ultra and teaching entrepreneurship to kids at primary school, um, you know, I would go into universities and work with their students in higher education. The thing is, though, is if I said to you that um, isn't it great that we're teaching maths at higher education and that, you know, it would be nice if we did it for kids. I mean, people's minds would blow, right? Or if I said, oh, well, you know, we're, we're starting to teach science, there's lots of science degrees and, and there's, you know, only a few at primary school, then you'd think, well, why aren't we teaching it to kids, right, at primary school? Because you can't, how can you effectively um, learn a topic at degree level when you've not experienced it before, right? And I, I just want I just want us to sit with that for a moment. And it's and the reason why we say it, the reason why we're okay saying it about entrepreneurship is because we don't take it seriously as a subject. So entrepreneurship seems to be a thing, but I don't think uh, across the board it's taken, or it's not so much as that it's not taken seriously. I don't think it's understood well enough by enough people for it to be regarded as a subject as opposed to um, an experience, right? So in in higher education, there's lots of kind of more experiential work and enterprise-related subjects which you don't find in school, right? Except that entrepreneurship and um, entrepreneurial mindset on an entrepreneurial skill set runs run, runs through anything. So even if you take maths or if you take history, right, you and I know that there are lots of educators who have taken an entrepreneurial spin to those subjects and they've created companies, right, who are, you know, very famous, you know, um, history-related education companies, very famous maths-related education companies, but that's because there was an entrepreneurial thread that, that ran through it. So I'm, I'm saying that to say that um for 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 those for, for for young people to have a better chance of success um later on in life and to reduce this failure rate entrepreneurship needs to be taught early because my conclusion to the the, the heavy failure rate in entrepreneurship is simply because it's taught too late so of course nine out of ten businesses are going to fail um or nine out of ten entrepreneurs are going to fail because the idea of entrepreneurship is introduced essentially in adult life right so what chances are you going to have at a particular skill set or subject or experience if you've never learned it before and okay now we expected you know as a essentially as a grown-up to get your head around this very wide and diverse dynamic idea. Okay, so Jules, I'm going to throw a thing, a few th- uh, debates out to you. Um, uh, probably the reason why schools don't do it, because obviously we've got uh, different schools of thought and thinking within the profession. So we've got the traditional uh, thinkers and then we've got the progressive who actually believe in entrepreneurial. And we've also got another debate where um, some 
teachers and educators don't believe in creating a workforce. They believe in teaching students for learning. There's obviously all these conflicts happening within the education um sector how do we resolve this because uh, another conflict that we have is that the there's a massive complaint from employers that you know who are not, well employers are complaining about skills but essentially they're not training their staff either I, these are all massive massive problems within the whole system right <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's a really interesting debate. And if you think about it, um, if you look at the traditional view of education, the reason education existed, you know, hundreds of years ago was, was to create workers that was it was to create factory workers right it was it was that was the the the, the funnel right was to create people who had enough skills to go and to execute low-level work that's that's what it was for right and this is the reason why we have summer holidays it it was because of a farming cycle and 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 for and for um and for and, and for crops that whole thing so when we when we say about traditional right you, you've got to think well we're not in a traditional we, our society's moved on a, a lot and a lot of the manual labor a lot of the um the heavy lifting that was necessary in um um in in in, in, in an environment which required machinery and engineering a lot of that's been replaced through through automation so there's a lot of tasks there's, there's a lot of jobs which we don't need to train people for anymore right um so we don't need to train people for repetitive tasks anymore machines are doing that and, and they'll continue to do that going forward we need to train people for we need to train students to think and to apply thinking and to solve problems and to be more creative because we know that those are the things that machines don't do well okay so um so the progressive argument is it all it's doing is it's just it's just trying to fit into what's happening in the workforce today and employers are absolutely right the, the, the trouble is um you can take someone all right as an example you can take you can take a student who has degree in computer science but struggles to apply um tech related problem solving skills within a working environment right so the, the, the trouble that employers are having is saying that the gap between what um uh, students are learning in school and what they need to apply in the workplace that gap is really really wide and so what they're saying is that the, those work-ready skills just aren't there and, and, they, and that they're not transferable. They can't transfer what they've learned in school or in higher education directly into the workplace. And so, you know, whether it's traditional or progressive or however you want to look at it, what we need to think about is, okay, what are we actually trying to prepare students for? If we're preparing them, if we're preparing them for work, whether it's employment or self-employment, then what we're teaching them needs to be able to transfer as easily as possible. Otherwise, they are now disadvantaged, which is the reason why youth unemployment is so high, and it's there are lots of organisations across the UK set up to to deal with that and to plug that gap. Um, and so I think that um, you know we need to consider um, the motivations also of kids because. You and I know that learning by rote is not the way, it's not the most effective way of learning. It's just not, you know, some kids are good at it, some kids aren't. You've got to, it's a very narrow band of 
um, of, uh, of of neurological um, uh, wiring that allows a child just to um, excel learning learning via rote. Okay, when they do, Jules. You know, they're just going to forget it, and it won't be and it won't be applicable. Okay, so I think again that whole aspect of of neurodiversity um, comes along with entrepreneurship because entrepreneurs are individuals who people say see the world differently or they are able to see problems differently and come up with solutions and even if it's not one individual it's, it's a group of people who are able to do that and so i think that's where we need to try and sync education with where we want young people to go okay thank you for that jules i mean one of the things that i, I obviously i've been in education for a long time and i've seen loads of changes to the curriculum one of the things that i do uh, think that is important to highlight is as head of business um being able to teach the way that i'm teaching i don't think it is practical for entrepreneurial activity when i listen to people like holly tucker for example who is a very famous entrepreneur she actually uh, states quite openly she got a grade d in her business studies exam but then has gone on to produce a highly successful uh, and is a, a millionaire in a in a sense um and a, a, a business um so she's been very very successful i think where the problem comes jules and uh, you know one of the things that we do need to think about education is that sometimes there is a lack of support time and resources and i think a huge part that we need to think about i think people may be slightly scared about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial activity including parents because there are assessment difficulties and there is an absence of progression because sometimes even though you talk about the core competencies we're not sure what we're actually assessing and one of the things that the OECD says is that one day it would be desirable that domains of entrepreneurship and education increase their collaboration with each other in the future both within research and practice and I think that's what's important there's this need to close the gap between the stated and desired effects of entrepreneurial activity with education and, and an understanding of it understanding of what can be measured how can it be measured and what are the actual competencies of it are and then eventually you know bringing that into primary and secondary uh, levels with an embedded approach now obviously this is all new to educators and everybody knows what entrepreneurial activity is but in terms of in the real essence of creating entrepreneurs uh, it is a very very hard thing that we're gonna have to think about um, and I do think that it will come into education no matter how how resistant people are to it eventually it will come to that so it, it can be confusing for parents and for teachers Jules yeah the thing is is um so uh, th th there's a couple of narratives which um uh, Jules we've only got a bit so sorry to interrupt you we've only got a bit so if you could just wrap it up in a few minutes please Thanks. yeah sure sure so um so uh, the, the idea of entrepreneurship and education isn't new. It, it's been, you know, it, it's been banded around for quite some time. I think, I think probably the issue is that entrepreneurs and educators should work more closely together, because um, I think if if academics are 
trying to work this out in a little bit of a silo. I know they get entrepreneurs to dive in and out every now and again, but I think entrepreneurs and educators need to work really closely together to be able to, to solve this. Because as you say, you know, what, what is it you're assessing? How do you know what progression looks like? All of this kind of stuff is really important, but I don't think that it can be determined within just, just an academic bubble. I do think that entrepreneurs need to work really closely with educators to act, you know to get us closer to what could be an effective entrepreneurial curriculum Jules thank you so much for an enlightening conversation and bringing us entrepreneurship and enterprise to the forefront it makes me uh, really think about what I'm going to be teaching my students because like I said uh, the curriculum is very narrow right now uh, and I do need to think about that and obviously like you said hopefully one day in the future we can uh, start thinking about um, different assessments strategies and competencies and thinking about how we can actually produce uh, more entrepreneurs because that is the future and that is the way uh industry is heading as well and despite the fact that there are educators that say we're not creating a workforce i do think it is very naive to think that we're not creating a workforce but that is my personal opinion jules thank you very much thank you sabia have a great day and you keep in touch bye-bye right okay um brilliant guests for today um exam season is looming we've got lots of revision to do i've got loads of revision classes um and i know that students are feeling really anxious right now which is understandable as well as staff uh based on the um things that have been happening with the pandemic and everything next up we've got khalil um we've also got a new host prof prof mfl i'm sorry i don't know your full name and we've also got christopher vals this evening all fabulous hosts all um brilliant uh, topics which are being delivered on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you very much for turning up today and I will see you in two weeks time. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.